solution, the only solution at the time that I was ever given from all these different trainers, all these different methods, whatever, was to get stronger, to get harsher, to be meaner, to be a bigger bully. And so it put me, it put, you know, it was me against the horse. We were fighting all the time and it felt so terrible. Hey there, I'm glad you're back for another episode of the TWE podcast. If the audio is a little bit off, I apologize. I'm usually driving in my car when I record these episodes, so I try and keep them as clean as possible, but sometimes I can't help it. <laughs> Hopefully this episode is really helpful and inspires either um, questions or just a thought process. And I would love to hear back from you about how this podcast episode or my podcast episodes in general have impacted your life and your relationship with your horse. If you feel like you'd like to share, you can always check out more information about the willing equine on my website, thewillingequine.com, where I talk about different things on my blog. I share about my social media platforms, and I also offer training services and things like my foundation course, which runs every three months. So if you'd like to learn more, head to my website. Otherwise, keep listening or actually, you know what, wait till after the episode to check out my website because um, I would love for you to listen to this episode and I'd love to hear back from you on it. So keep listening and I hope you enjoy. Alrighty, so as promised, I wanted to talk today in this podcast episode about pumpkin, my mare pumpkin. So for those of you guys who don't know, pumpkin is, um, I should have looked up her age before I started this episode, but I want to say she's about 12. I may have to correct that, but she's a 11, 12 year old Appaloosa mare. She's about 14 to ish hands high, maybe 14. Yeah. She's about 14 to hands high. Um, she's a red done with really pretty, like I'm forgetting the technical name for all the different patterns, but it's like a lace slash like snowflake type pattern on her rump. Um, and oftentimes she's mistaken for a paint horse because she has really tall white stockings. She has a half uh, piebald face that covers one side, so one eye and blue eyes and all of that. So she, and then she's pretty much solid except for over her rump where she's got some of that, the speckling, the white speckling. So a lot of times at first glance, people, you know, are like, oh, she's a paint. And I'm like, actually she's not. Um, but she's a, she's a, um, a beautiful mare that we found. She we just looked through, we were looking for some, I don't know, at the time we were looking for trail horses. So I had, my mare tiger at the time. And I had some other horses as well that I don't have any longer. We had, um, we didn't have any, any other horses that were here that are here right now. I don't think were with us at the time. I'm, I'm pretty sure we just had tiger and then we had two other mares that are no longer here anyway. Um, so I had, you know, we were looking for some steady Eddie, like, you know, just casual weekend, type rider, um, trail horses that my husband, particularly I was looking for a horse for either my husband or my father who was built, you know, had a strong back and was built well and was easygoing and would just, you know, kind of pack them around. And, um, so we, um, we found a for sale ad for her 
and also just to kind of put this in there, this was a long, this was a while ago. This was a long time ago. Um, before I started everything I do now, before TWE started, before I was really in doing any positive reinforcement or clicker training before, um, really, and I was training a whole different way. I was fresh from my hunter jumper and dressage days and, I had my, my late warm blood had, um, had been put down and then the younger warm blood I had, he also was put down, um, medical stuff. It was just not, it wasn't good. Long story there. You can listen to some of my backstory, um, podcast episodes, but I was ready for just like something easy. So I was looking for just easy horses, <laughs> horses that were confirmationally sound. They didn't have to have great papers. They just, they didn't need to be anything flashy. They didn't need to have show records. They just needed to be quote safe. And, um, they just needed to be safe and they needed to be able to trail ride. So I had originally thought my mare tiger, uh, my late mare tiger would have been that horse for my father and my husband, but it turns out she had like a lot of anxiety and she needed work and she was very, you know, sensitive to AIDS and stuff like that. And at the time I'm, you know, you have to keep in mind as I'm talking right now, I'm talking about like my mindset at the time. So I may use words that I wouldn't necessarily use now, but at the time I was like, okay, she's just too nervous. She needs a lot of work. She needs more training, you know, all of that. So we found this mare pumpkin for sale and we drove to go see her. And, um, we fell in love with her. I mean, she, to be honest, was not my idea of a pretty horse. Like a, I would have never picked out her coat pattern. I would have never picked out her coloring. I would have never picked out anything. Even the fact that she was a mare, I was already, I was still really partial to geldings at the time. Um, there was just a lot about her that I wasn't like too keen on. Uh, but as far as like aesthetically, but when I watched her go around and I watched how she just took care of my husband and she was an easy, you know, quote, easy ride. Um, we just were like, she's the one, she's the one she's built. Well, everything, she's strong. She can do it. Like she's, she's a great, you know, horse. And my, my, you know, we're tall, we're all really tall people and built, you know, strong. And so, um, I needed her to be a, a good size, like as far as her, how broad she was in the shoulder and how strong her back was and all that. If she was going to carry around a big Western saddle and my husband. So just think about like, you know, traditional, like a Western, um, you know, for my English people, <laughs> my English riders, just think about, you know, the Western, um, the cowboy type horse. That's what I was looking for. So, um, so we brought her home and she, we brought her home on a trial period and she, uh, we said this was it, you know, she's the mayor. So we ended up finishing, you know, finalizing that paper, those papers and buying her and having her with us. And, um, it was interesting because she was, she is, was, is a really great mare, but she wasn't really like my idea of like my ideal horse. So I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're, out horse shopping, but you're not necessarily looking for you. So my type of horse, the horse that, you know, at the time, again, I'm talking from my mindset back then, my type of horse at the time was a high energy, more sensitive horse, a horse that was very much a one per one rider horse, um, that needed somebody to be their safety, you know, all of that. Like I really liked like thoroughbred types and Arabians and, um, more hot, you know, higher, 
thoroughbred line, warm bloods and stuff like that. Like that was just more of my type of horse. And then we have Popkin who uh, was just like steady Eddie. Like she does, she's just plugging along. And then on top of that, not only was she just like, whatever, I'll do this. She was just super low energy. I mean, so low energy. And so I kept riding her in between when my family, you know, when we would do trail rides and stuff, because she needed some, you know, we needed to work on her standing still for the rider to get on. And there was some other stuff. I can't honestly remember. It's been so long at this point. But I want to say, like, the turning and um, stopping when we pick up the reins. Like, I just needed to fine-tune some of her uh, riding cues because it had been a really long time since she had been ridden when I bought her. And we needed to get her in shape and such like that. So keeping her in shape was important. Um, even if you're going to ride just on the weekends or every once in a while, you still have to keep your horse physically prepared to be able to carry a rider in the saddle or else you're going to cause damage to their back and their body. I mean, it's like saying, you know, I've never run a day in my life or I haven't run in months, but I'm going to go run this marathon. Like you're going to hurt yourself. So even if it was just a little, you know, short 30 minute hour long trail ride, that's still a lot of weight to put on a horse's back and expect them to carry without that preparation. And even at the time with my older school training style and all that at the time, I knew that at least I had my, my classical, um, my principles as far as like preparing the horse in a classical fashion, like getting them prepared physically and um, academic art writing stuff. I had all of that ingrained in there. And I also knew um, about, you know, the health of the back. I knew about quite a bit of stuff. So I brought all that in at least and saddle fit and such like that. But it was such a difficult experience trying to do her quote training rides where I would get on and fix, you know, all of the stuff that other people had to quote, let her get away with. And because she was like a kick to go kind of horse, like you would have to kick and kick and kick and kick or put on a spur or a whip. And just to make her do anything. I mean, she was just like, I just walk or I stop with stopping is good. And we just stand here. Um, doing anything above a standstill or a walk was asking a lot of her. So <laughs> I had so many frustrating rides on her. And on top of that, it was like riding a two by four. Like, I don't know if you've ever been on a horse that's like that, where you get on them and you ask them to bend left and they're just like, this is like, they can't, they cannot bend, they cannot flex or anything. And sometimes they'll even just fall into that shoulder and turn their head the opposite direction. And you do the other side and the same exact thing. And, um, they don't bend through any of the corners. They just turn like, a little machine. I, I don't know. It was just a disaster. And now I know a whole lot more about that. But at the time I was just like, she's just so resistant and she's stubborn and she's a bully and she needs to be, she needs to respect me and she needs to give to pressure and she needs to be taught how to like, I don't know. Like I just had this fight mentality. Like I needed to make her do what I was asking her to do because, um, she was in the wrong. And if she wasn't in the wrong necessarily, I, my mindset still was that by not making her do these things, I'm actually causing her harm because I had all these like classical principles and, you know, all of that understanding of like biomechanics and all that. I had all of that. So when I would ride and she wouldn't flex quote correctly or anything, it was that understanding plus my mindset of I was in, you know, I needed to make her do things were fueling each other because I needed to make her be 
a correct, you know, be correct under me and do these things or else I, she was going to cause herself harm. So it was like I was justifying a lot of my actions. And I think traditionally, you know, like I think that's not uncommon in the horse world is we justify the use of tools, um, like gadgets, training gadgets and forms of riding, because if we don't use them, then the horse won't do it. And if the horse won't do it, then they're harming themselves. Right. And so this was a, a cycle that I was in with pumpkin, this mare in our early days. And for a long time, actually. Um, so it wasn't just like, you know, the first month or two, it was quite a while, um, a ways into our relationship where, it was just we were at a war with each other her her brain and was protecting her body so that was one aspect of it is i was fighting against like just deeper stuff going on neurological stuff going on and then on top of that um i didn't have a really solid understanding of learning theory and and behavior and all that so and I was still very much stuck in pressure and release is the or and punishment is the only way and for pressure and release to work for negative reinforcement to work you know all the traditional training here's the thing is you can't stop so even if you don't escalate the pressure you have to hold it until the horse gives and does the thing that you're asking and then you can release Otherwise, if you release too early, then they just learn to hold longer. And that was one of the things I think had really happened with her to some degree, but not all of it. Um, and I may have even been the instigator of some of it because, I did, again, I didn't have a, a solid understanding in how what I was doing was work, how it was working. I just didn't understand. I just was operating on all the things I had been taught for years and years and years from many different methods and trainers and Olympic athlete trainers and, um, you know, these top name trainers and methods. And I'd done so much of all of that. And I was just doing what they had told me to do, not ever understanding the why behind it. Like, why is this working for this horse? And why is it not working for this horse? Um, or why is it? And when I say working, I just mean like literally it worked as like two plus two equals four you know put pressure on the rein the horse gives its neck and then or turns a little bit and then you release the rein and the horse continues to turn when you pick up the rein it's working okay so um but as you guys probably know if you've been listening to this podcast long enough for me now I understand that effectiveness is not enough like that that is kind of the I picked that up from Dr. Susan Friedman and I continue to use it and remind myself of it just because something works does not mean it's the best way to go about it or it's necessarily the way you should do it. Effectiveness is not enough. So when I say it works, it was working and I was didn't really understand why it was working back then. I'm talking about effectiveness. So it was just effective. Why was it effective? What was causing it to be effective? Um, and I'm not even considering all the other factors that were involved at the time at least. So, um, so yeah, so it just put pumpkin and I in this like cycle, this battling cycle where she was protecting herself. She also didn't understand what was being asked of her. She probably had a learning history of if she just waited long enough, the pressure would go away. So there wasn't this, um, t good timing, which allows, you need to have really good timing to allow, um, negative reinforcement to work 
uh, and be effective without it being, you know, escalating to unethical levels. Oh, and that was what I was saying before. The thing is about negative reinforcement is you either have to hold it. You don't necessarily have to increase the intensity of the negative reinforcement, meaning you don't necessarily have to pull harder on the reins, but you do have to continue to hold it which could equal to increased intensity from the learner, depends. Um, one example I was using to talk about this with somebody recently was, you know, let's say you walked up and you gave somebody a hug or, you know, a handshake maybe, or um, let's see, something else. You could, yeah, so like, a, so when we talk about pressure, um, whether or not pressure, the idea of non-escalating pressure is a thing. And I don't have a, a specific answer for you, but I just want to pose this question or give you this example. So pressure doesn't necessarily equal negative reinforcement. Everything in life is, there's lots of pressures everywhere. I mean, the wind blowing and you being, you know, I don't know, just sensations and feelings in the environment like that could all be labeled as pr uh, pressure. But um, so an example I had was if you give somebody a hug... At first, it's, you know, that's the cue to you, like, to hug back, and it's great, it's fine, but there's a certain amount of time that it's all okay, and you know how to respond, and then, but if they continue to hold that hug, even if you don't squeeze any tighter, or do anything else, like, nothing has changed, the sheer amount of time that you have been hugging somebody could change just information and something that's not necessarily aversive into something that is aversive. If you hold, if somebody traps you in a hug and doesn't escalate, it doesn't increase, it's, they're not squeezing harder, you'll start to become increasingly more uncomfortable. You're like, okay, when are you going to let go? Like, when is this going to stop? Like, you should stop now, right? Please stop. Okay, stop now. Like, I, And so you can see how we could translate and we need to keep this in mind when working with negative reinforcement and that was kind of a bunny trail but when we're riding with negative reinforcement with traditional riding with pressure and release they're all the same um, we have to keep in mind that even non-escalating pressure just that I'm just going to use that term non-escalating pressure does at some point begin to escalate for the learner because you're just by just holding it it does increase it could potentially I should say it could potentially increase in intensity in their mind because they're just like, why isn't this stopping? I don't know how to make this stop. And then they're going to start to increase and get a little bit more nervous and trying to figure out how to solve the problem and all of that. So, um, man, that was a bunny trail. And now I don't even know where I am. Um, I do this all the time. Hopefully you guys are comfortable with this. Uh, if you've been listening to the podcast long enough, you're probably familiar with my little bunny trails. Anyway, so, you know, I'm riding pumpkin, dealing with this, and I would be sitting on her and, you know, work, trying to work with her. And again, keeping in mind, I've been doing lots of groundwork with her. I've done, you know, everything from the ground. I've done lots of physical, like, strength exercises. I'm taking all of my principles and, and whole body biomechanics, like, all of that into a classical dressage, like, all of it I'm taking into my riding. So this isn't a horse just straight out of the field and doesn't know what to do. And she has training, um, quite a bit of training previous to me. It's just been a long time since she'd been ridden consistently. So I get on in the arena with a type of horse that at the time was just the, just absolute, I hope I'm using this correctly, but like bane of my existence. Like they're just, 
Oh, like it just irritates me so much. I always hated riding the kick to go school horses. I hated riding the slow, pokey, low motivation, low energy, um, resistant, stubborn, whatever horses growing up. Like give me the runaway, bolting, bucking, whatever crazy nutbag of a thoroughbred or whatever horse any day. But do not, please do not put me on that slow lazy horse like whether it's a warm blood quarter horse doesn't matter if you have to kick and use spurs and crops like uh just no I did not want to be on it I would refuse I just wouldn't I would trade you horses like I don't want to be on that horse and I think one of the reasons I didn't like being on horses like that was because for negative reinforcement to work for the traditional riding to work for these methods and all that to work it meant I either had to hold pressure which wasn't uh, a big of a thing, as big of a thing back, like the idea of non-escalating negative reinforcement wasn't really talked about. It was always escalation. There was always escalation. And sometimes they would start off in an escalated state. So that's the other thing is you could, we need to, if you're going to train with negative reinforcement, you need to start off at a much smaller approximation and like prepare the horse and have a shaping plan. And we start off with very, very mild. And then we can increase from there slightly as the horse has the information. Like there's so many different steps we could take, but oftentimes we're just told like, get on and kick. Right. Um, so I think one of the reasons I hated riding horses like that, and I'm using the word hate because it, that's how passionately I felt about those situations was because it forced me to be able to, if I was to be effective, it forced me to utilize um, actions to act in a way. So I, I would have to ha uh, behave in such a way that it felt very wrong to me, that it felt like I was hurting my horse or that I was getting, and it would instigate a lot of anger and frustration in me. And it just felt so wrong. So instead of being able to figure out and have trainers and, and behaviorists, whatever, like sit me down and be like, okay, you know, Adele, your horse doesn't want to go forward, you know, X, Y, Z, right? Whether it's a medical issue, physical issue, or it was a, a training issue, whatever, like we needed to unlock the reasons why, and then problem solve from there. Instead of doing that, the only solution, the only solution at the time that I was ever given from all these different trainers, all these different methods, whatever, it was to get stronger, to get harsher, to be meaner, to be a bigger bully. And so it put me, it put, you know, it was me against the horse. We were fighting all the time and it felt so terrible, but I didn't know what else to do. And I didn't have another solution and nobody else had a different solution. And so I just avoided working with these horses. But then here I am with my own horse that really was doing the job I hired her to do, but I needed to like, you know, keep up on some stuff, um, and keep her exercise and stuff. That was one of these horses. And I was just for a long time, unfortunately, it made pumpkin, not my favorite horse. Um, it made it really like I was reluctant to work with her. I didn't really, you know, I just, she was just a horse I had and it's such a sad statement, but that was the reality. That was what happened at the time. Um, so insert in, or, you know, it w we kept going on that path. I mean, nothing dramatic happened. There was no crazy, like she didn't blow up. She didn't, that was a thing. She didn't do anything. She just would shut down. She like literally, <laughs> this is how shut down. I mean, like, or what I mean by like, she would just, she would like power down. 
So I'd be kicking and hauling on her and like using whips and spurs and all the kind of stuff that I hate using and I wouldn't use on any other horse except for her because she had to have those things because that was the only way she listened. And if she didn't listen, then she was going to harm herself and all of that, that cycle. She would, if you didn't do those things, she would just stand in the middle of the arena and not go anywhere, like just go to sleep. Which at the time, I thought it was her going to sleep, but now I know better. Anyway, so, and, and just a little insert there in case I forget to come back to that point. It was um, her shutting down and going to, into like a learned helpless state and internalizing. Not her going to sleep. That was, it was an out of context. You can tell the difference between when a horse is like going to sleep and like closing their eyes and resting versus a horse that is shutting down and internalizing is when it's out of context and you know, I'm on her back, we're in the middle of riding, and I've just been kicking and walloping on her, and she's just powering down, she's just going to sleep, like, looking back, it seems pretty obvious, but at the time, it didn't, I just thought she was just being a brat, um, other context that this happens in, that I have had recently experienced with her, more, or more recently experienced with her and other horses, um, but with her intention, uh, specifically, um, was during farrier appointments, so for a long time, I just let you know, we just did traditional handling with the farrier because she was really good. She just stood there. She was fine. She let her feet be handled and got them all done and whatever. It was all good. But then I don't know what happened. It was kind of this weird light bulb moment uh, where I think because, oh, I know why. Because up until, um, up until this point, this, the story I'm about to tell you, um, we had just been, she, the fairy had just been doing her without me standing there. So just tying her up, doing her feet. And I wasn't necessarily standing right there and with her during that time. But there was this one instance where she was, we were out in the field and we decided to do her feet out in the field and she was having a little bit of a hard time. And so I had to put the halter and lead rope on. Oh, cause we decided just to try and trim her without tying her up. And she didn't really want to stick around for that, which should have been my first light bulb moment or my first indicator, red flag. Um, you know, why wouldn't she just stand there and have it done without the halter and lead rope, but she would stand there and let it be done with the halter and lead rope on? Like, why, what, like, she would just be gone without the halter and lead rope. So that was my first red flag, but I didn't really, you know, it was all happening back to back. And the second one was once she had her halter and lead rope on and I was holding her, you know, lead rope in her halter, she just started to fall asleep. You know, like it looked like she was falling asleep while the farrier was working on her feet. And I, it was very out of context. Horses don't sleep while they're having like their feet picked up and worked on. And it just is not her it wasn't like they was so out of context that she would be going to sleep in that situation so it was very much this big red flag this big uh, light bulb moment that she was internalizing and um, powering down like learned helplessness all of that she was just coping with the situation whenever she would have her feet done she didn't actually she wasn't actually okay with having her feet done she just had probably been corrected you know by me in the past years or by previous farriers. I used to have farriers that um, didn't understand a kinder, more behaviorally like aware approach to working with feet. You know, my fairy doesn't necessarily, she does do some clicker training, positive reinforcement, but she's just very kind and she's um, patient with the horses and she lets me do my thing. 
with them. And I stand there through all the appointments now and, you know, feed the horses and work with them and all that, make sure everybody's good. Um, but in my past fairies I'd worked with were more, you know, rough and would, you know, correct the horse or punish them if they stepped away or they yanked a foot away or whatever. So she was definitely like powering down and just coping with the situation probably as a result of that. So that was a more recent experience as in the last couple of years. Um, so at some point during this whole process, this whole like journey of many years that I'm kind of jumping back and forth throughout, um, I was introduced to clicker training and you can go back and listen to, um, my love without conditions episode or, um, there's one I just did recently on the animal training Academy podcast. It's episode, I want to say 136 and 137. And they're the ones that are featured with me, um, where I, where I tell tiger's whole story. And so that's when I got started with clicker training, but sadly, but it, you know, it, this just is what it is that it worked out. I didn't start doing any positive reinforcement or clicker training with pumpkin for a long time after I started with tiger, like probably a full year or more. Um, because I was convinced that pumpkin was at the time, this <laughs> so funny to laugh at yourself and the, you know, like in hindsight, you're just like, what were you thinking? Um, pumpkin was too stubborn and lazy and, and she was also pushy around food and, um, she was too, you know, all the things, all the labels. So clicker training would probably make a food monster out of her and she didn't need it. She was fine with negative reinforcement. I don't know why I thought that she was fine with all of the kicking and, you know, hitting and spurs and everything I had to use when I'm riding her. And I don't know what, what I was thinking, but, um, it wasn't for another year about, yeah, about a year that I started exploring click training with pumpkin, but just like when I did with tiger, I did a lot of combination type stuff. So I would ride like I've been riding and then I just started clicking and reinforcing for certain things. And this made it better, but I was still having a lot of trouble with her, like not wanting to do anything. So I could get on, I could maybe get her to do a couple things, but then she would just stop and she would power down again. And, um, I would be tempted because I was still struggling with a lot of frustration with her and feeling aggravated. I'm like, you're getting food, you're getting the clicker. Like, why isn't this working? It works with this other mare. Um, you know, this is supposed to be more effective. Like, why are you being so obstinate? And so I'm just, I'm admitting right now that like, and I'm, I'm not hiding anything, but I would get really angry with her, like really angry with her. And because I was doing everything and I was like, I am trying my hardest to do better here and you're just not giving me anything. And it just was such a struggle. Um, not being frustrated with her. I I think one of the big things is because I didn't understand even, you know, at the time I definitely didn't understand like learned helplessness and the powering down and her expressing her concerns or fears or worries or, um, you know, her, her, the aversive nature of being ridden or whatever I was asking her to do through that response. That was her response to those things. Whereas my mare tiger, her response was to become more reactive. So she would buck, bolt, crow hop, um, get, you know, start circling around me, bump into me on the ground. Um, just, she would start rubbing her head and neck on things. Like it was very clear that she was anxious and stressed and scared. 
And so I think it pulled a level of empathy from me and because I could see the stress and the fear and the, and the worry from Tiger. And so I couldn't be frustrated with her because it, at some level, whatever level I was at at that moment, like as far as my learning goes, um, I understood that this wasn't like her, she wasn't trying to be purposely difficult. She had, there was trauma, there was all this stuff. And so based on my understanding of equine behavior and emotions and all that, which was rudimentary at best, it was pretty obvious to me that she was scared. For Pumpkin, it was not obvious that she was worried or scared or had trauma or whatever because her response was less reactive and it didn't fit the classic like scared horse image. And we're all taught, or at least the people I've met and I know and myself included, we're typically taught that a horse that runs away, a horse that bucks, a horse that, you know, um, starts prancing around, has whites of the eyes, all that is a scared horse, right? But a horse that is resistant or stubborn or lazy and just won't go, they're not responsive to your aids, they or would just rather stand there. They'll bite you if, you know, they might bite. They um, get frustrated with the fairy. You might, like, kick out, and they, you know, don't want to be tacked up. Like, that is a bully horse, an obstinate horse, a horse that needs to be taught a lesson. They don't teach you that those responses potentially, likely, are also a fear response. They're also, um, the horse expressing fear, possibly also pain, a lot of times pain. Um, and pain and fear, I think go hand in hand because you're, you know, we, um, something is painful and then we be, uh, we become worried that something's going to trigger that pain again. So we start defending ourselves. We start protecting ourselves. So if tacking up and being ridden is a painful experience, then why wouldn't the horse um, try and resist that in the future? Because it's going to be an unpleasant experience. It could be painful. It could be frightening, you know, all these things. So I tend to think of it as those are just another fear response. Um, The behavior is a fear response and trying to avoid a pain, a situation where it's going to be painful, right? Or it could just be a straight up fear response, like something scared them. So... So yeah, so so pumpkin. This this whole episode is about how pumpkin has been just such a incredible teacher, despite my resistance to learning from her. And but I honestly think she like she unpacked something really deep and pushed me to understand behavior at a much deeper level and how horses don't always respond with this reactive flight type behavior that oftentimes their fear responses or they're trying to avoid pain um, or confused responses can look like what we are all taught is just a lazy, resistant, stubborn horse. Like that horse right there is potentially just doing the best it can. It's trying to do the best it can under the, under those situations, under those circumstances. And potentially flight responses like spooking, trying to get away, you know, all these things have been punished or corrected. So they have learned over time that those um, behaviors are not an option, that they're going to lead to a path of more damage and more pain and suffering. So instead, some horses will 
just internalize and shut down and try and cope. And this, sadly, sadly, this is often the image that we are taught is, um, we're often taught this is the ideal horse. This is the trained horse. This is the well-mannered horse is in reality, a horse that is very shut down and is just doing the best it can to cope with its situation and what's expected of it and all of that. Um, sadly, this is the reality for many, many horses in the equestrian world right now. Um, but if things get, you know, certain horses may flip to the other side of the, you know, flight, fight, freeze response and go to a fight response. If the fear responses, the flight responses are blocked, they may go to a fight response, which is then you get your horses that bite and kick and rear and go after you and charge people. Like I've seen videos of horses that are charging after people that enter their pasture and unfortunately, these same videos have people saying, oh, this horse is being aggressive and needs to be put in its place and all that. All I see is a horse that is terrified and is trying to defend itself. And while, yes, I agree those are not safe behaviors, there's an alternative option to helping that horse not feel fearful. Or I should say there's an alternative option to helping this horse be safe and comfortable in its environment other than punishing that behavior. Cause that really the punishing behavior doesn't fix anything. Um, it just suppresses the expression of it. So we've suppressed the fear, the flight response. We've suppressed the fight to response. And then ultimately the only other option is learned helplessness and, um, being stoic and, um, internalized and just trying to cope with your trauma. But oftentimes those horses that are put into that state, it will just randomly kind of blow it back on your face. Like something will push them beyond and they'll just kind of explode. Not all the times, but it does happen. So pumpkin back to pumpkin. <laughs> While I don't think that, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know about her history. I don't know about her past. I do know though the many years that we spent together, um, where, you know, I was outright, mad at her and angry with her and took it out on her many times. Um, unfortunately that it's, I can't really erase that. Um, and so we've spent the last couple of years repairing, um, last many years repairing that, um, relationship that we previously had and, um, her learning that she can trust me now that I'm not going to explode in her face, that I'm not going to be Dr. Jekyll, and Mr. Hyde one minute, giving her click and food and the next minute, you know, kicking really hard because I'm like, why don't you just go? Like it just drives me. <laughs> um, and, and I've had to learn this whole process has been very, um, therapeutic for me. And, uh, not, I don't know if therapeutic is the right word, but I've, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot in, from her and our journey together, our relationship together on how to recognize emotion, recognize that I'm getting frustrated in the moment, recognize that I'm, um, not understanding why she's not, whatever, like whatever's happening that's starting to get my blood kind of going, right? Like I'm starting to get a little bit worked up. I, I have learned over our experiences together and, um, to step aside, <laughs> to take a step back and to really assess the situation and, and look back. And oftentimes, you know what? Oftentimes the causes 
is that I didn't take the time to adequately prepare her for what I was asking her for. I don't know what it is, but I think because she came from a good home and she had, you know, no obvious, like, well, at the time when I first got her and, and since, you know, I didn't, there's no, like, severe trauma. She doesn't have, like, severe separation anxiety and severe food issues and, like, she wasn't, like, severely, like, there was no obvious like sign this beacon sign that like I am damaged right <laughs> um I had so many expectations like I just go into I have always gone into our sessions just expecting her to do things like you're a well-trained horse just do this um and unfortunately that has led to a lot of problems it has led to a lot of problems in our relationship and in the effectiveness of the training and in my emotional responses to her and in her being able to trust me um, and she, and, and because it wasn't so obvious because I didn't, there weren't these big flight responses or these big fight responses. It was so easy for me to miss the signs. It was so easy for me to miss the red flags. It was so easy for me to ignore them, um, to just continue on and to clicker train and positive reinforcement for Tiger because she was damaged and needed the help. Right. You know, and I'm using that kind of, um, loosely, I don't think. I don't look at my horses as like damaged or anything. They all are individuals. They all are so um, inspiring and they have so much to teach us and they have just amazing abilities to forgive and to grow and to learn and to be, and they have so much potential. I, I do not look at, or I should say this, I have intentionally purposed myself to leave their history behind to some degree. Like, yes, this happened to this horse and I know about it, but that's not the horse that's here right now. Like, yes, we have those things. Yes, I know that's there. Yes, I know this terrible thing happened to this horse at one time. But, and while that may help me in creating shaping plans and training plans and to know our thresholds for certain things, like, um, like for example, my gelding cash, he, um, was severely emaciated and starved for a very, very long time and was not treated well at all for a long time, many, many years. Cause I got him when he was about 18. And so he had 18 years of people just being, from what I can gather, I've gathered as much of his history as I can, 18 years of people just being terrible to him. So cash is cash. Like I don't think about those things when I go into a training session with him. You know, he is his own, he is not his past, right? But it is helpful sometimes to know these histories because then it gives me, like when I first take in a horse, like when I first took in cash, I knew that when I started working with food, it would have to be very slow and patient and we would spend a long time um, having other food resources available, making sure he felt like he was never going to run out, making sure we didn't you withhold any reinforcers, which I do for every horse, but specifically for him, I needed to be very careful about that because I did have that starvation, like winter is coming men, you know, he did have that starvation winter is coming mentality and, and body mode. Um, so it meant working with food took, um, time to work up to and to prepare for and to help him. And, but we, we've got, we're good. Like we have made so much progress and he's okay. And he has, it's been years and years and years since he's ever missed a meal. Um, 
or ever been without grass or forage. And so he's doing fantastic and he's flourishing and um, all that. So same thing with horses like pumpkin or tiger, whatever, like it's useful to know their history so that I can appropriately modify um, the shaping plans and the training plans into, and they will help me know like, okay, this part, this stage of the training is probably going to take longer. So it can help me set realistic expectations, but I do not identify my horses by their history. Right. And, um, so with pumpkin though, I, there was no, and I should say, okay, I should say that mindset is more recent as of the last couple of years. But when I first got my horses, these particular horses, that was not my mindset. I definitely had this like, well, there was a rescue, you know, this is a rescue horse and this is a a well-bred, you know, trained show horse, right? They were two different things. Like, of course my rescue horse would act this way, but my show horse is not allowed to act that way, right? Because he doesn't have the bad background. He is a well-bred, papered, you know, well-trained show horse, right? So he's he doesn't have any excuses. So I, it was almost like the being a rescue, having that trauma, having that history, whatever, um, was a, um, it allowed, in my mind, it gave those horses more room for error. Like it was permission for them to make more mistakes. It was, it's so, again, looking back on myself, I'm just like, what, what? what was I thinking? But for whatever reason, my show horse was not allowed to ever make him. You know what I mean? Anyway, so pumpkin definitely got, unfortunately thrown into that. She's my, she wasn't a show horse, but she didn't have the baggage, right? It's that I could see. She didn't have the history. So she didn't get the loopholes and the, you know, the more like, oh, you know, she's a rescue and she was starved and like, oh, whoa is, you know, like she didn't get all of that. And again, I'm talking about my old mindset. (laughs) Um, now I just look at horses as individuals in the moment, even per day. Like it doesn't matter. It's like individuals as a whole, but also per day. Like it does not matter what my horse did yesterday. We're looking at them to, to, uh, I can't talk. We are looking at them in the moment And if my horse isn't able to do the thing I'm asking them to do, why is that? Like, let's look at it. Let's problem solve it. Let's create a different shaving plan. Let's modify the shaving plan. Let's clean up our loops. Like there's so many things I do now that have nothing to do with their history and who they are and all that. Um, Hopefully I'm making any sense whatsoever. But Pumpkin didn't get that grace. That's the, yeah, I gave my rescue horses a lot of like leeway, a lot of grace And then, but Pumpkin, she was papered, well-bred, had training, professional training, didn't have any obvious trauma or starvation. So she didn't get that grace and that leeway. So a lot of our problems came from, actually all of them came from, um, me just jumping in like halfway, like, and just going, okay, you, you'd know how to do this. Like you're a well-trained show horse. You should know how to do this. And then getting impatient and frustrated with her quicker because she didn't have all of that history and baggage. So she should just do this. Like, why is she being, so she must've been just being purposely obstinate towards me and purposely difficult towards me because she didn't have all of that other stuff in that I would be sympathetic to. And it's such an unfortunate thing because it created a lot of damage and a lack of trust in our relationship. I still see stuff show up every once in a while. Like the other day I was doing a training session with her and on a stand stay and I use, um, a hand up, like a stop sign, like I'm 
telling her to stop with my hand. Um, that's like my cue for the standstay. Unfortunately, due to our history, um, she has a little bit of, you know, fear around hands because um, she's been hit for being mouthy. She's been, you know, kind of like forced backwards, like with um, big hand, like shaking motions with a lead rope in the hand, like so punished for getting too close and backed up out of my space. Um, she's also been like, there's, there's been other stuff. There's been a, quite a few experiences that she's had. Oh, like if she gets too mouthy, like taking food from my hand back in the day when I was first clicker training and mixing and stuff. Um, if she would bite at my hand, I would kind of like bump her with that hand when she was taking food and it created a lot of fear around my hand. But she's doing really, really well now. Like, I rarely see anything come up. But the other day, I did see something come up. And she was showing some, um, like, a calming signal where, or a stress sign where she would turn her head away from me and then bring it back center. So she was, like, saying, like, hey, chill out. You don't need to raise your hand at me. Um, and so I'm going to, I've been thinking about whether to modify the cue or not. She did get better by the end of the session where she wasn't showing the head turns. And so... That was a relief that, like, I still think I can just condition that because I'd like to keep the same cue for all the horses. But anyway, that was just kind of an example of how these things, these experiences with our horses can show up years and years later still because they have that history. Like, I can't erase the history that I have with this horse. Like, I can't erase Pumpkin and I's history. All I can do is work to create new, like better history. Um, new, I can make new history, um, make our experiences going forward, positive ones, ones that don't have the outbursts from me, the frustration from me, the impatience from me, the, um, lack of effective and well thought out shaping plans and training plans and, and meeting her in the moment and seeing what she needs from me. Like I can avoid doing all of that going into the future so that, each day that we go, each time we have an in, in interaction in a training session, the more and more we have those that are like that, the further and further back that old history will go and this new stuff will will um, be heavier and more recent and have and hold more weight in her mind. That's the that's the goal. So. So, yeah, so this is <laughs> it's. It's really interesting because this is actually the first time that I've fully voiced or expressed or talked through uh, Pumpkin and I's like relationship as a whole um, and how where we've come from and where we're going. And we're in a, such a different place now than we used to be. Um, I no longer feel that frustration with her. She's, which is funny. Okay, so here's the thing. This is really what I should wrap up with. As soon as I set aside that idea that she was obstinate and stubborn and lazy and all of, and low energy and all of that. I started to see a totally different horse when I started treating her the same way that I would treat a horse that had, you know, as I would treat tiger, as I would treat, you know, my Philly river. If I would, you know, if, as soon as I started seeing her through what I know now and giving her the benefit of the doubt, basically, in every situation and stopped losing my patience with her and really reflected on myself, uh, reflected on, you know, how much this wasn't a pumpkin problem and it was an Adele problem. All of it was an Adele problem, really, to be honest. Um, she just 
transformed. Like, it, was su- it became such a different horse. She runs and bucks and plays in the arena with me, and she will do reverse round pens like walk truck canner all around and she will um she'll carry riders i'll be on the ground usually and then i'll have my students get on her and she will just just super forward she loves to go she's one of the first ones to meet me in the pasture all the time she loves to go on like trail runs and hikes i'll just like we'll just go running off into the field together and we'll just trot basically side by side way off into the field and go exploring. She has a beautiful recall, like, and she loves to jump, like go over obstacles. I'll do recalls over obstacles. So like free jumping, but like R plus style. And it's been crazy. It's been crazy to experience that transformation as soon as I started seeing her for her and helping build that trust back up again. And, not causing her to have to internalize and cope and shut down on me and just really listening to her. As soon as I started listening to her and modifying myself to meet her, she has now been giving me back what I was asking for before. So like what I wanted before was energy and, you know, quote, sensitivity and, and responsiveness to cues and her to be, um, you may, you know what? I just thought of this. I used to think she was really dumb. That is this. That is the. It's <laughs> such a challenging thing for me to think of now. I'm like, how could I've ever thought of her like that? Uh, she's so smart. They all are. But she learns just as quick as everybody else does. She um, is just as capable of doing clicker training and positive reinforcement as every other horse is. Her food. She's completely like no food anxiety. No. You know, none of that. Like, it's all... I mean, every once in a while we'll have a little bit of stuff come up. Which, this is something I didn't really talk about before, which I probably should have. It would have given a little bit more background to the situation. But she is... um, She's metabolic and has PSSM. So we have different physical issues that I've known about for a while. But most of this stuff became something that I discovered after we started transforming our relationship. Because I was like, okay, as soon as... Yeah, because when I stopped blaming her, when I stopped thinking about it as a pumpkin problem and started looking at myself, I did start to recognize that some of this wasn't, um, there was physical stuff going on, which I hadn't really recognized before. And it just kind of cleared the, 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 um, the fog, right? It just made me start to see things much more clear. And we discovered that she had a lot of muscle pain and tension and her feet were sore. And it was also... Um, around the same time that, well, I'd say actually I did, we went barefoot for everybody around the same time I started exploring. Um, oh, it was about a year after I started exploring clicker training. So I was still in that combo stage. I hadn't really, pumpkin and I's relationship really hadn't hit like that transformative point. But yeah, there was just a lot that we've unpacked and now she's feeling better too. That helps a lot. Um, the the metabolic stuff and the muscle stuff, the PSSM and all that, really wasn't a problem during our earlier stages of our relationship. So I don't think that was what it was in its entirety it, as far as, like, it's not that, you know, it wasn't that it was actually a PSSM metabolic issue. And I'm just saying it was a training. It wasn't at all. There was, because the way, um, yeah, so the way it all happened 
even after I di- we diagnosed her with like PSSM and you know all the metabolic stuff and got her feeling better, that those I would try and get back on and ride, and she would do the same things again, even though she was feeling better. So it was probably a combo thing. It's never like one or the other. That's probably why she opted for a more like shut down response. I don't know. There's so many factors. There's genetics. There's learning history. There's their physical health and well-being. There's the training. There's our relation, you know, our history together. There's so many different factors. But each one of those factors, each one of those pieces has played such a an amazing role in helping me grow as a trainer. And has and she has done an amazing job <laughs> of being patient with me and helping us move forward and yeah, so I'm just really thankful to Pumpkin and I kind of want to just get on here and share with you guys our story together so far. It's still we still have lots to learn together. There will be new inspirations, new learning curves, new experiences to come, many more to come. Um but I thought it would be really great to talk about Pumpkin um cuz I know I talk a lot about my mare Tiger. Yeah, so that's Pumpkin and I and I have revealed a lot of pretty not so glamorous things about myself in my training path to this point. I'm not perfect. I still lose my patience sometimes. I still, um, you know, do things I'm not super proud of. It's getting better day by day. I'm way more capable of like, at least if I'm getting, at least now (laughs) I've gotten to the point where if I am starting to get frustrated with her or any other horse, I can say, let's stop. Let's stop right here. I just toss them some food in a pan and I step out and I have a little conversation with myself. So at least that type of stuff is getting better. Um, and if not, I mean, like, I think my, um, uh, I think I'm doing better as far as like being able to be more at peace and really training this way as a whole has inspired, um, a very transformative process in myself too. Like it's not just about the horse training anymore. It's, you know, with my kids, with the way I interact with people around me, the way I teach, like all of that has made such a huge, I have made such a huge shift in that. And I understand behavior better now. And I understand causes for behavior and emotions and the impacts that genetics and, um, learning history and all of that has on us as individuals and our actions in that moment. And because I have more information there, because I understand behavior more, I'm able to respond in a way that I like better. And because I don't feel as, I think the reason we get frustrated, at least for myself, I'd get really angry and frustrated with horses like that is because, like I said, when it caused me to act, to have to act in a way I didn't like to, and then two, it was because it was like a loss of control, like great or loss of understanding. And there's a great, really great quote that I can't bring to mind right now that it's talks about, um, uh, yeah, like something about like punishment where knowledge ends, punishment begins, stuff like that. Or yeah. Um, something basically, yes, that, so it's not that I'm trying to control my horses, but I would get frustrated and angry when I couldn't see a path forward other than doing more of what I was doing, which wasn't working. And so automatically then 
the problem had to be with the horse because there was no other answer. There was no other answer than that there was something wrong with this horse because it wasn't responding in the way it should. And so by getting rid of that idea as an entirety, like just throw that out the window, um, (laughs) that has helped me so much in the way that I'm able to interact with my horses and in the rest of my life, just knowing that there's so much more, like there's so much more to it. It's never just a matter of like, my horse isn't turning left right now. Like, okay, why aren't they turning left? And it's not necessarily always training related. Sometimes it's physically related. Sometimes it's, you know, other stuff. So I'm really thankful to Pumpkin and I'm going to go out there and tell her that right now I'm actually sitting in my car outside the barn, um, recording this episode on my phone. And I'm going to go thank her right now for that, even though she has no idea probably what I'm thanking her for and all of that. She's probably just like, oh, we're going to do a nice training session, (laughs) which is good. That's what I want her to be thinking about. I want her to engage and want to do those things with me. So, um, so yeah, I feel like this is a, maybe it turns into a bit of a, um, a a series where I talk about the different horses and our, my learning experiences with them so far and like what they've taught me and how they've transformed. I've used that word a lot, but transformed myself and my life and my, also the way I approach training others too. Um, I have rivers one that comes to mind when I think about like how much a horse, like one particular horse that has just absolutely transformed like a huge area of how I train with positive reinforcement. Now it's very, I'm more of a, like a practical technical side. But because every horse has transformed how I train, like TW wouldn't be here without Tiger, without any of the guys, without any of the horses. Um, I, let's see what wouldn't, yeah, like being able to like, um, not blame the horse and really look at a deeper cause and like understanding like these deep, um, issues like PSSM and all that and how they can affect behavior and looking at how we label horses and whether we're, we're carrying in or, um, categorizing horses by like rescue slash baggage horse and horse that should be good and okay with everything and should just deal with it. Like that type of categorizing of horses, how damaging that is. And it's, it's, it holds us back, but it really is problematic for the horses themselves because they're all just horses. They all, there is not some horse that magically is different than others because it has papers. And just because this horse over here was abused at one point or starved does not mean it learns any differently or um, doesn't require as consistent or well thought out training programs or whatever as the other horse. And so it's just like we need to, there's horses, the category of horses, <laughs> Um, not all of these subcategories of like, there's a rescue horse, there's a show horse, there's a breeding horse, there's a, you know, it's, and and even then in between the, um, mares and stallions and geldings and all that, like we start categorizing in between there. And then the colors too, like some people treat red headed horse, red horses differently than a black horse. Like how many times have you heard about the red mare? Like they're, oh my gosh. Or breeds too. We start categorizing like. Appaloosa, like I told you guys, she was in pumpkins in Appaloosa, and it would be so easy. And she's also red and a mare. It'd be so easy to go down this path of, well, no wonder she was resistant and stubborn and obstinate or whatever, because she's a red 
Appaloosa mare. Like, she's the trifecta, right? Um, but that wasn't it at all. Like, it has nothing to do with it. Yes, she's a mare, so she has, like, hormones and stuff, but so do we. Like, there's no, it doesn't mean you're any different than the person next to you. I mean, you, yes, we deal with different things because of those hormones, but it doesn't mean we learn any differently. It doesn't mean we are different because of it. It doesn't mean we're less quality. It doesn't make us less, um, valuable or less able to learn or less capable because we have female hormones. Like it's just doesn't. (laughs) And so, um, so yeah, so then you know, there's some, there's other stigma, you know, different biases and stigmas out there and all that with the different breeds. But I just wish we would look at horses as a whole and try to label them a whole lot less and categorize them a whole lot less. And while, yes, we need to recognize that a mare is going to deal with different hormones than a gelding, that's just fact. And we need to, yes, recognize a horse that has PSSM and a horse that doesn't have PSSM are going to have different tendencies or needs. That's just a fact. And yes, a, um, a warm blood, it has specific breed traits versus a Appaloosa mare has specific breed traits as far as like they're built differently. So they're different conformation. They might be, um, one breed might be, might tend towards more, you know, like having more energy, more forward movement. One breed might tend towards more, you know, conserving a little bit more energy. Like these are just kind of genetic facts. They're just there. There's just tendencies and they're not, well, they're not actually facts because, you know, there's all types of, well, okay. There's variations within each breed, right? So there's, there's all kinds, they're all over the place within each breed, but as a whole, that breed may have a tendency towards a certain trait or aspect, and that's true. We need to take all these things into consideration, but they do not define the horse that's in front of us necessarily, and they do not, they do not um, give us by any means permission to treat that horse differently and against the behavioral science, against the, all of this stuff because of those things. Like they do not make this horse better or worse because of them. They, they just are, right? They're just those, that's just what the horse has. And we just need to, as trainers, as ethically minded trainers, as trainers, a Lima mindset, we need to look at the individual, take these different factors into consideration. But ultimately at the end of the day, they all, you know, we need to be better trainers and not blame our horses. Those factors, those things, those those aspects about the individual, they are not, um, I'm looking for a word, they are not the fault of the learner. They do not mean, that does not mean that the learner is at fault because of those things. They do, that doesn't mean that something is wrong with the horse it does not mean that something isn't going to work for the horse. It just means that we need to take those into considerations and potentially modify slightly. Um, but that ultimately the responsibility for good training, for effectiveness, for, um, for keeping our horses in such a way where they can be mentally and physically and emotionally balanced and healthy and like all of that, that responsibility falls on us. 
not on the horse. You can't blame the horse for these things. You shouldn't blame the horse for these things. And that's pretty much the sum of like what pumpkin has really driven home for me. And, um, yeah, I think I will stop talking now. I think I've gotten many points across, hopefully. But if you guys would like to hear more in this series, like hearing more about the different horses and how they've impacted my life and my training career and what I've learned and all that, um, maybe you could shoot me a message. You could, um, send me a message on Instagram or Facebook or whatever and I will see what I can do as far as I just want to see if you guys are interested in hearing more of that and we will uh, look into that thanks so much for listening if you'd like to find out more head to my website thewillingequine.com on there I have a really extensive blog I'm a very prolific writer and I also have a an FAQ page and the FAQ has all kinds of things it has questions and answers about training and about my training specifically as well as just general about working with positive reinforcement there's also sections on there about health and um, behavior so all of that I'm also on a lot of different social media platforms, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. So check those out and I'd love to hear from you. So don't hesitate to email or send me a message.